Welcome to this week's FSF and Tapestry podcast. I'm Helen and this week my colleague Jack and I are joined by Chris Holland. Chris describes himself as a storyteller, nature connection facilitator and didgeridoo player. He's an environmental educator working with children and adults to cultivate the connections people have with nature, each other and themselves. He works closely with teachers helping them to take learning outside and make it playful. He runs a wild school for home educating families, bushcraft and outdoor play camps, away days and team building events for corporate groups. Chris founded Whole Land in 2000 to bring people of all ages into a more meaningful, loving, respectful, joyous and spirited relationship with the natural world in the hope that this will help humans want to live in a more balanced and sustainable way. Chris has written a hugely popular book called I Love My World, packed full of information about our natural world and practical, inspirational ideas for activities and experiences that help children and adults learn about their environment and connect with nature. Okay, welcome Chris. I'm joined uh, uh, by my colleague Jack from the education team. Hello. Together we have Chris Holland. Hi. Um, I've said a little about Chris in, in my introduction, but welcome Chris for this afternoon. Thank I'm going to crack on with something about your book, which I really, really enjoyed, I've got to say. I read it on that beautiful weekend a couple of weekends ago, lying in the garden, and I read it cover to cover, which was really great. I enjoyed wow. that immensely. You said in the book, this book is for nature, in the hope that through doing some of the activities, we humans will feel a bit more love and respect for the world around us which really resonated with me. What's your feeling about the current relationship most people have with the natural world? I think that uh, it depends on where you are in the world as to what your relationship is with nature. And so I, in a way, I can only really speak for myself here in, uh, in Devon, in England, in Western Europe. Um, and so and, and have a bit of a reflection on what I see in the news as well. But it seems like um, most of us in this part of the world have a relationship which is, is quite sort of dualistic, as though you know, we are separate from nature and that nature seems to be this, just this resource that we can use uh, you know, as and when we please. So you know, whether it's for you know, getting health by going out and having a walk, outside and being amongst the trees or whether it's you know growing food or whether it's extractive um by taking the resources out of the ground we definitely see it as a um a, a resource not really, really that we are part of it and so i think you know part of the book was to uh, the, the purpose of the book was to help people feel as though we were we're part of nature and that um, we can really very much be at home within nature and um, and to bring about that sort of discussion of a reciprocal relationship with nature um, because I think that that's where we need to be in terms of sustainability in the future and uh, with a you know less impactful relationship on the rest of the planet yeah yeah I um, I really enjoyed the, the section of your book where you talk about listening and listening to the world around us and to the subtle language of sound, to our hearts and the call of the wild. It was all 
very romantic and I just was at peace while I was reading that section. Many of us have experienced, certainly in the early part of lockdown, um, birdsong in our gardens and when we're out for walks and we've really enjoyed that tremendously. I live on a main road and for those first eight or ten weeks it was brilliant mm. that we were able to sit in the garden and hear all the nature around us. Um, now that all the traffic is back, particularly outside yeah. our house, how can we encourage yeah. families to experience the sound of nature? And now what's the first thing you advise if someone like Jack actually, who doesn't go out very much, <laughs> how can we encourage Jack outside? <laughs> go on, give me some very first hand advice here. I need it. Okay. Well, you know, one of the things that we recommend as kind of nature educators is a thing called a sit spot, which is a place that you go to regularly. Maybe you can do it once a day. Um, and through different times of the day throughout the year as a place to connect with um, your sort of other local wildlife. Um, and it could be just your front step where you can uh, see you know, a tree or a bush or something and popping a bird feeder or something like that out there can immediately bring uh, different species in. And so you know, engaging in with the bird language or the sounds that the birds are making is a really cool way to engage with nature um i don't know if you've heard about a thing called the five voices of birds which is a um it's often with people with bird song it's just so confusing because there are so many different types of birds out there and they all make a noise and which one is making what noise like, oh, i don't know <laughs> um, <laughs> but if you sort of simplify it down to five different voices then you can relate to the birds on a sort of an emotional level because um, the sound of their calls, our bodies you know, and the bodies of other mammals and other creatures are sort of designed to pick up on these sounds because um, you know, in our past, we needed to know what the birds were saying in, for our own survival. And we still got that in us. So if we, th we can think about um, the sounds that the birds are making if they're just doing a territorial call or if they've got a you know an alarm call or a sort of desperation sort of call um or one where they're sort of just contacting their friends like you know, often with a chaffinch for example um you might not know the sound of a chaffinch but they do a sort of chink 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 sound and that's often one because they go about in pairs um one bird will be saying you're right the other one's going yeah i'm over here yeah, i'm right <laughs> i'm over here so it's, it's just a really nice feeling yeah. to that call so it just listen oh yeah and the last one was um uh, sort of parent to child calls so there's lots of begging calls well there were in the springtime especially during lockdown there was a lot of um calls between you know, very young fledglings desperately needing some more food or like you no know, teenagers just asking <laughs> you know, what's for dinner <laughs> every uh, half hour um so yeah listening to these kind of five different voices of the birds is a, is a good tip and there's one more which is um you know switch your eyes off if you can if you could so we're so visually dominated aren't we as a species and um it can be fantastic to just you know, close your eyes um, or put a blindfold on. And if you have a you know a partner or a friend who can walk you around holding your elbow, 
um, then immediately your ears tune in to the other sounds of nature or you know even humans that are around as well but it's brilliant for um, expanding your awareness and uh, yeah, as a, an outdoor sort of forest school teacher we we play with blindfolds quite a lot for developing yeah, sensory awareness spatial awareness trust um, as well as you know, developing the, the hearing. Um, I once spent 24 hours um, blindfold to raise, raise money for the West of England School of the Blind because uh, I just really wanted to experience what it was like. How, how was um, that? Um, do you know what? It was so tiring. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> yeah. It, I did, you, did you find yourself having to rely on so many different things? because you, you were just blocked off that one sense. Uh, yeah, very yeah. much so. And I went and had a, a little introduction from the people at the West of England School um, who showed me how to use one of those kind of walking sticks with a sort of um, a ball on yeah. the end so to help me feel around. So I had to use that a lot for walking about um, and rely on uh, my wife to help. We went on a sort of three-hour walk uh, together and... Um, you know, I had to completely rely on her for where we were going at the long distance. And uh, my feet, like feeling of what was under my feet. Um, but what I found was that, oh, oh yes, this is something that somebody, some of you might relate to, is that um, I was so tired by like two o'clock that I really needed to have a, a sort of siesta before I went and picked up my daughter from school. And my wife was off at work that afternoon. So I'd asked her to set an alarm for me so I could wake up. And I did. Julie woke up at quarter to three so I could go and pick her up from school. And I thought, oh, no, where have I put my walking stick? Where, you know, where is it? I couldn't remember where I'd left it in the house. So there was this kind of panic of, oh, no, how am I going to get to school in time if I don't find my, my stick? Because I've got a you know, five-minute walk down to school. Um, Thankfully, I just you know, got on my hands and knees and I basically traced everywhere that I'd been um, and found it and then set off. But it made me appreciate you know, how organised you have to be as somebody with partial or little no sight. Mm-hmm. Wow. It's fascinating. Just, yeah. sorry, just circling back to what we were saying about the, um, the five voices, because I found that so interesting. Just, just because now even having that just that bit of information that you can possibly differentiate things just based on that made me want to go out and do it and i think that's kind of the point isn't it and i think that kind of really links to what you talk about with this flow learning cycle Uh um and essentially how i understand it is that it's you need to sort of awaken that enthusiasm in people before you move into a kind of very focused learning and i yeah. think uh, you know a, a lot of the time in school we're we're rushing especially you know uh, i have experience with this for sure you're rushing to get to that focused learning part and sometimes the um the bit at the beginning which you should be awakening the enthusiasm it kind of gets missed off so would you mind talking a bit about that kind of flow learning cycle that you talk about yeah sure so yeah it's a cycle that i've been using for you know almost 20 years i suppose i found out about it from a guy called joseph cornell who was an educator based in the states and he as a national park ranger found that people were getting off the bus at the grand canyon for example where he's working um and uh they would get out of the bus they'd move around the car park a little bit they'd 
go off and have a look at this awesome, incredible site, and then they'd go off and have a cup of tea or a coffee or, you know, go to the shop. And they weren't really engaging with the place. Um, and he felt the same with, you know, with children. It's like they would, you know, they would get off the bus and they would, they needed sort of catching this kind of excitement, needed catching first. And then um, in, for in, for them to be able to know more about um, or be in a space to learn about the Grand Canyon. So he developed this sort of flow learning cycle, which started off, as you say, with a, like, um, a story or an activity or a game which gets the energy going um, and then once people are sort of run around and burnt off a bit of steam then they can uh, you can bring that energy into a bit of an excited curiosity so that you can then focus their learning and attention uh, on a particular thing so let's talk about the geology at the Grand Canyon because that's um, in my mind at the moment and then to uh, reinforce that learning there was then a, a a chance for people to have a sort of one-to-one -one connection with the place so he might send them off to do a, a just a little drawing or if we're talking about hearing he might get people into their own spaces and get them to listen listen to five different sounds some very close some very far away and then he would bring the group together to um to share their experience and so through sharing people would create connections not only to the place and to what they were learning about but to each other and when other people hear that oh you know i, I heard that sound as well for example then it sort of reinforces and um just makes the learning more um and probably physical inside the brain with new neuron neuronic connections yeah and so that learning cycle I've um, since sort of uh, through working with a group called the Eight Shields or the um, Wilderness Awareness School in America, we sort of, rather than having four different um, elements to the learning cycle, it's been upgraded to eight, um, which again, they're all based on, um, we base it on the compass. So uh, there are sort of eight different directions. There are eight elements to the learning cycle, which are based on nature, which uh, I find uh, suits my way of doing learning really well. Yeah. So why do you think it's essential that we get children out outside into nature? We all have a kind of inbuilt understanding that we should do it, but we don't really know why, I don't think. Yeah, I well, yeah, I guess that... The, for me, it comes back to the fact that we're still only a step away from um, our nomadic um, hunter-gatherer roots. If you think about it in geological time, it's just a snippet that we have been living in in, in houses with electricity, for example. Um, so, so much of our need uh, for development as, as humans needs to be outside um, with the impact of, uh, along with nature, I think, and that is shown in terms of people's physical development. Um, you know, we become much more agile and we are fit and healthy if we spend more time outdoors. Um, there's the... Um, the sort of mental and emotional um, well-being that comes again from spending time in nature. And this is all sort of being um, uh, documented in books like, I think, uh, Nature Matters. It's one of the, there's, a, there's quite a few books out there at the moment. I can't think of them all yeah. off my head. 
Um, but it basically says that you know, people are mentally uh, often they they can heal more quickly through time in nature. They are, it, it can bring more mental stability and peace and calm, which en- enables people to be healthier and happier. Um, and also there's the engagement that people have sort of socially through spending time together outdoors and learning and playing. And with all the um, need within our brains as humans to make connections, we make new connections when we come upon new things, whether it's a new smell, a new shape, a new sound, a new pattern, uh, a new feeling. And as we're growing neurologically with all these new connections until we're sort of middle of teenage, the more, the better it seems to be. And four square wall, you know, four walls don't give many new connections, do they? And we are having infinitely more through the internet now, but it's still, it's not holistic. And I think that, you know, humans um, are what, you know, for example, you know, biologically, we are almost more bacteria than we are humans, aren't we? So, and that's I love what that. I'm going to use that in my next pub quiz. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've just been reading a book called 10% Human, which, uh, which is basically saying exactly that. I mean, I've only just started it, but um, yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, do you find yeah, that... Yeah, we think we're human, but we're not. did you find that when you work with a group of children they're almost all naturally drawn to nature or do you ever have to cajole i'm looking for a better word encourage (laughs) not force um, jack yes not force um (laughs) yes have you have you found children who are reticent and don't want to join in or can you win them over most of the time um definitely there are many children who are not into going out into nature um I'm just thinking, for example, of last week when we had some thunderstorms during the wild school that I was doing, that one of the children was really terrified of thunderstorms because we were outside and we might get struck by lightning, um, etc. And so, you know, there's a lot of the time it's to do with fear um, as to why people don't really want to be outside. Um, And my take on it is that a lot of the time it's from the parents that has been transferred to the children that um, excuse me um, gives children the mindset that it's you know it's dangerous to go outside so that might be a fear of spiders or bugs or um, uh, we have taught that lots and lots of plants and fungi are dangerous and so and if often if teachers are really sort of scared of you know bees or wasps or um you know, poisonous plants, then you know, teachers will, again, sort of that fear, whether it's said or not, will be transferred to the children. So they're a bit more uh, cautious about going outdoors. Or, um, And then again, stories, the stories that we tell our kids as well can be a bit scary. If you go into the deep, deep dark woods, there's going to be a, uh, you know, a wolf there. So um, take care. And that's you know, that was a story from... When I used to run summer camps, actually, a, a child won a place on a summer camp in Devon, and he was from London. Um, he was a really streetwise nine-year-old. He was you know, full of kind of ego and bravado and things like that uh, during the daytime. But when it came to nighttime, 
he was absolutely petrified and he wouldn't come out of the tent because there were wolves and there were big snakes and you know, they were going to get him. Um, and that's totally what he believed. And, and I couldn't get him out of his tent, bless him. Mm. <laughs> yeah. what, what do you think you, you do? Sometimes there isn't anything you can do in the moment, but is there any like tips and tricks you can do to combat that kind of attitude? Because obviously you say a lot of kids have that, has that kind of attitude towards going out. Um, but in your you know your workshops and stuff have you ever come up against that personally and had to do something to try and alleviate that kind of do you mean like the wolves and wolves and snakes yeah yeah um for me it it is it's about being gentle and compassionate and uh knowing where or, or feeling where people are at and um yeah, just knowing that if I have the sort of con- confidence in the gentleness uh, with them, that it, they will then see for themselves that it's not how their imaginations see the world, and that by telling other stories and reinforcing that with you know real life um, experience, that you know touching this plant or whatever it is isn't going to kill you. It's okay. Um, then they can build um, their new relationships through their own experience. Yeah. Something that springs to mind when I ran my nursery was um, a couple of the children I can think of over the years um, were sent to nursery with immaculate clothes. Their, their mums oh. were very beautifully turned out. They were like me running down to school in my joggers, or that they looked beautiful in the morning. And the little girl, the both girls actually, um, would turn up in their immaculate stuff. And one in particular was terrified of going in the garden here because she would get her dress dirty and mummy would be really cross. And yet she really loved being yeah. outside. So we kind of did a bit of a jig around that and we got her to change as soon as she arrived. And you know, I'm ashamed to say now, but we didn't actually tell mum because so then she had four hours with me in scruffy old clothes and then 10 minutes before mum, I'll probably be struck off now, um, <laughs> 10 minutes before mum, we put her stuff back on and everyone was happy. So I, I yeah. don't know if she ever told her mum that she spent hours in the garden. I have no idea. But I felt it was important for her to feel relaxed out there and not be, you know, so worried about what, what mummy would say with dirt and paint and stuff all over her clothes. Mm, yeah i guess it is it's just finding the what would be considered the root cause of any kind of fear or trepidation about the situation mm. and then tackling it that way that's better and that's yeah. what you did helen so yeah. yeah 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 definitely fear of getting clothes dirty it's it's so common and because yeah. you know parents don't want to clean up so much and work stuff <laughs> Yeah. So if, if Jack was back in school and taking a group of children outside, which might be rare, who knows? <laughs> um, what could you yeah. do tomorrow? If, you, if a teacher was listening and they're expecting a, a group of children to take out next week or whenever schools go back, what's a really simple activity they could do to just get a taste of what, what you're encouraging teachers and children to experience? Yeah, well, I think I would sort of refer to a story called Mama Africa and an activity called Blobsters, which uh, you know about in yeah. from my book, I Love My World. Um, and so it's basically telling a very simple creation myth and then going outside to play with clay. And the, the little story that I would encourage people to say is... Um, you know, once upon a time, way back, um, Mama Africa was all alone and um, all that there was in, in the whole country or the continent were, were plants. There were no other creatures there. So 
uh, Mama Africa stuck her hands deep down into the soil and came up with some clay. And then uh, into the clay, she stuck little bits of plants to be sort of legs and ears and eyes and noses and mouths of, of creatures. And she blew into, onto them, set them down on the ground and they scurried off. And that's how it came to be that all the strange creatures that live in Africa uh, came to be there. And then I would give uh, children a, a little blob of air drying clay or you know, pottery clay and encourage them to go and find bits and bobs and stick them into the clay and and then play with their little clay lobsters. And you can do that in so many different ways. It's I've had grown-ups in Scotland making um, lobsters and then talking about carbon footprinting. <laughs> and, um, and, uh, and, and then also just you know, children talking about hippos and elephants and stuff. Yeah. So it's a great um, activity that you can use in a multitude of different ways. And then you can take it off in so many different directions then. There's got yeah. story writing and play writing and puppets and poems and artwork. It can just yeah. go off in so many different directions. Yeah, then, yeah. and maths with all the different legs and the arms and you know the weights of different things and symmetry yeah. and it's all there. Yeah. yeah it's a- talk, talking about... Um, uh, working with a group of children outside and possible fears that they might have mm. or fears that their parents might have. Do you ever talk to children about survival skills and do you use real tools and what do you have to think about there in terms of risk assessments and safety of the children versus they should be taught certain skills really? Um, yeah, well, <clears throat> I think teaching survival skills is one of the re- main reasons why I sort of came into schools with uh, forest school and creative outdoor learning. See, I just thought that this is the kind of stuff that people um, are forgetting. So there are simple things like you know, how to make a den out of sticks and leaves that you can stay in overnight. Um, and so it's a bit like a, making a squirrel's dray, but on the ground with sticks. And um, you know, these are the kind of things that I've made on survival courses that I've been on uh, to stay in overnight. And then you know, the other thing that makes us very much human, um, which is to work with fire as well. So that relationship that we've had with fire for you know, thousands of years, um, in a way we're being taken away from that because we, we don't use it so often. Um, but it is one of those things that people has been central to people's lives for, for cooking, for communication, scaring the animals away celebrations, um, you know, sort of sacred events or um, yeah, what, what am I thinking about? Celebrations and um, ceremonies. Uh, so it's very uh, a human thing to know, to need to know how to light a fire in all conditions. Um, so that's another survival skill. And the other one of sort of learning about water and where that comes from and how to purify it because again that has been taken not taken away from us but we as humans you know we just turn on the tap nowadays and we don't really have to think about it um so just even thinking about where water comes from and how important it is to us and how can we treat it so that it is good for us rather than containing bugs etc um and then again the wild food element of um, of survival skills, it just it helps people feel at home, you know, on, on the planet. So that's, you know, so if people know the plants that are around them, 
and have that relationship with the plants nearby um it really sort of puts your feet on the ground and you know helps you yeah i think feel at home so i do use knives quite a lot within forest school and it's it's really transformative actually uh, as to uh, I, I I came from it from a point of view of we must know how to use a knife because you know we, it's it's metal it's another one of those things that makes us human and um, through learning survival skills and learning how to make fire by rubbing sticks together and using a stone tool to prepare all of the the kit it takes hours and hours to do that compared to if you have a knife and a saw and it can take five minutes. Um, so just appreciating the value of a bit of metal is really important but it's, uh, and what it can do for you as a sharp tool. But what I didn't realise was that actually what giving the trust to some, some of the children who, especially I find the boys who are sort of bouncy ones in class and want to sort of get out and do things and they're a little bit more disruptive, when it comes to forest school, they'll, they can... Yeah, and they can't focus in class for more than two minutes. Give them a stick and a, a sharp knife and a and a challenge to cut it in a certain way, and they'll be there for you know hours. And can we do this next week? And um, it really helps them focus their energy, realize that they can be, um, they can learn, they can achieve, that they are, you know, they have a sense of their you know, self worth through a lot of the sort of riskier activities so in terms of the benefits of doing those kind of activities i think they do outweigh the outweigh the risks and um yeah we if you are taught to handle a knife in a sensible way um in a safe way then you can do it in in small groups and uh yeah i think it's it's a such a valuable skill to learn yeah i think i think you're totally right when you're working with these potentially dangerous things you know like fire and bodies of water and knives and things it's it's coming at it with um like a different kind of respect i think with children and they really see that oh these are things to be learned about and then it really takes i think it takes away the stigma for them you know because they might have deemed oh fire is dangerous and knives are dangerous and we can't touch them and things like that and um that breeds a whole new different kind of stigma but if you use it in a respectful kind of way in a safe way and you learn that it's actually really useful and you learn about the history of things it just provides so much clarity i think for the children so i think yeah you're exactly right there yeah um, there is the risk that you know they will kind of learn about fire and get excited they want to go and set light to lots of things um but thank you yeah. that that I hasn't happened and like usually, that. I mean, it is about getting through <laughs> 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 where that started there we go excellent yeah um, currently there's this great concern about children speaking and listening skills and particularly in early years and lower mm. primary um so rather than more formal methods of trying to close the gaps and doing formal teaching what how can we support children's imaginative play outdoors which will therefore help their speaking and listening skills can you can you suggest a couple of things that that teachers might be able to do or parents with their children what kind of imaginative stuff would you recommend? Oh, 
Well, yeah, taking stories outside and allowing the children to, and it, well, catching their stories is really, really important, actually. I think because you know, if the children are playing outside and they find something that you know, looks like a fairy door, for example, or um, you know, just listening to those stories and really catching them and making sure that they have time to be excited and um, and share what they've what they found um, and what they're imagining is you know that will foster imaginative play more and more. And I suppose you know, going back to the blobsters activity, that really does sort of help children sort of bring to life inanimate objects and uh, and, and play with them. Um, but I was I was also going to, to say that I, I think doing songs and singing and sort of um, you know, making up silly songs about things outside uh, is because yeah, you can do that very easily as a, as a family. Um, <clears throat> one of the things that we use uh, for a school is we use I went and found it. I went and found it. And so we, you add into the I went and found a shiny beetle. I went and found a smelly plant. You know, and it would just take it in time, turns to chant a little phrase, and then the other person adds in something that they found through exploring. Um, and it's quite a nice way to sort of no pressure. Well, there is a bit of pressure there to add in the line. Um, but often when you make it silly and people sort of just join in after a few times because they want to be included, then, um, yeah, it can be a really rewarding way of encouraging people to speak up, um, be playful and be imaginative all in one go. Yeah, I don't think that's helpful. <laughs> Yeah. I, I want to go outside and play now honestly with all this. <laughs> the dark side come away from the dark side yeah. I love your descriptions in the book about um, stomping and sneaking and fox walking and yeah. I, have, I have a son who is now 26 but he, when he was a little boy he was known as stick boy because all he did was just carry sticks around all day he was yeah. a real outdoors boy and if oh. I'd known about stomping, sneaking and fox walking I would have really encouraged him Three uh -huh. those. Can, can you tell our yeah. listeners a little bit about those? Yes. Well, uh, one of my teachers, a guy called Thomas Shawcon, taught. Um, <clears throat> what can I say? Oh, I've got a frog in my throat. <laughs> <clears> throat> he would treat, uh, teach tracking and also um, stalking. So this isn't sort of stalking somebody around the land. It's more uh, what we used to do as um, hunter gatherers. We needed to sneak up on our prey. So how would we do that? We'd have to go really light-footedly. And so uh, with the advent of shoes and you know, thick soles and bouncy soles, people now tend to walk around on their bare, I mean, not on their bare feet, on their heels. And they'll sort of stomp about. So those vibrations that we make um, in, into the land and in our bodies are much uh, more sort of audible. I mean, one of the things that you can do is you can, if you're walking to just to try this, is to do two things. One is to stick your fingers in your ear and just walk around along a, along a concrete path normally, and then um, walk back again with your fingers in the ears on tiptoes. And you'll hear that the sound within your body is much, much quieter. So by relationship with the land, if you're tiptoeing around very 
carefully, then again, you make a lot less sound into the landscape. And, um, and also within, it gives you less sort of stress in your body. And um, because of the sort of concentric rings within nature where if you make a sound, then somebody else, a, a bird or something will hear that sound that they may react. It will tell your prey that you're coming. Yeah, by uh, sneaking quietly, you'll have much more chance of you know, having a David Attenborough moment as well and finding a creature. So, yeah. I want to try that now, sticking <laughs> Yeah. You have to quieten your mind as well, though. That's what they say. So it's, it's really good, not only for, um, you know, for slowing down in general, but also it quietens the mind and brings mindfulness. So, yeah, try it out. Going that sounds sneaking. much harder than just tiptoeing yeah. in the mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and see if you can do one step per minute. Now, there's oh, a little good. challenge. Yeah, that's the sort of stalking step of it takes one, one minute to, to move, lift your foot up and put it down. And, you, and you've done this with groups of children. I yeah, couldn't imagine yeah. <laughs> getting them to do that. Well, the, one of the best ways to do that is to take them in a the field with um, some grasshoppers at this time of year and just get them to walk really slowly up towards the grasshoppers, you know, often with their hands behind their ears like this so that they can hear the sounds more clearly and see if they can catch grasshoppers. And it's it's fantastic. You can be there for all afternoon just catching grasshoppers. Yeah. <laughs> That does sound fun, to be fair. It really does. Yeah. You mentioned in the book about one of the troubles of the modern world is a lack of community. And despite Mm. the advancement in communications technology, over the last few months, we've seen some really wonderful examples of people building and nurturing their communities through acts of kindness and generosity. What what do you think an effective community looks like? and, And why do you want to be part of one? Uh, I think an effective community is one way you've got lots of different, um, you've got diversity within ages so that, um, yeah, so that which makes a sort of a, a complete human community. I think it's great to have diversity in terms of ethnicity as well because it helps us see the world uh, differently. And I get just like age stages where each age will see the world in a particular way. And I think different upbringings and different ethnic roots, again, gives us, um, it makes life more interesting, I think. And I think people, one of the human, deep human needs is to be noticed and so, and to have belonging. And so with community comes belonging um, and relationship. So that I think you know, if you've got all age stages, like within my family just now, we've got a new granddaughter. So I've just become a sort of a granddad. And this kind of, <laughs> this relationship I have with my, she's my step granddaughter, but still there's this, um, I noticed in my own head that, in my relationship with my youngest child now, who's sort of 13, um, it's a different relationship. They're still children, but I've got this kind of timelessness and openness towards my granddaughter. Whereas sometimes with my son, like today, before I was getting ready for this, when he wanted to have a talk with me in a chat, I had, I was still filled with you know work things. And um, I think if you, when we step into that, 
timelessness of being a sort of a grandparent, you've got more time to give to your children and, and listen to them. And so they feel noticed more and our children get noticed more. And um, so there's, um, oh, what am I saying? I think it's by having the completeness of all these different age stages, people get their needs met more. Yeah. And I don't know what a community looks like. You know, supposedly there's that thing that um, with there's some kind of baboons in Ethiopia, that, like the biggest group that they get to is 150 because they can't have relationships with more meaningful relationships with more individuals than that. So I remember listening to some program about human communities that you know, if it gets more than 150, then it's kind of more than our brains can handle in terms of meaningfulness. And uh, maybe the world's just got a bit big and, and people need to have smaller groups of people to relate, relate to and feel, um, to feel part of, to get that belonging. I don't know. What That's do you think? quite a reflection of, of what's happened in the last few months, isn't it? That um, the only people we've seen are the people we're closest to, really. Mm. We've met in the garden with two other couples, really, in six months. That's all we've done. And we've had quite a lot of online conversations with, with family and so on. But it's those two couples that are really dear to our hearts, that are our best friends in the whole wide world, mm. we've really built on the relationships we had with, with them prior to lockdown. Mm-hmm. Since. So, yeah, I think maybe it just focuses your mind on the people that mean the most to you. That's, that's mm. what a community is. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's also that humans get so fixated on our community with humans. And, you know, we need to have relationships with, you know, our, where our food comes from and you know, other creatures as well, I think, to be, to, to feel happy and healthy. Yeah. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your family camps and what, what do families tell you that they enjoyed the most? Um, yeah, the family camps I've been running for for six years now in this particular place. Um, I've stopped doing other ones because I, I love this particular one at Trill Farm here in Devon. And it's they are up to 50 people. Um, on the camp and they have all age ranges as, as well from sort of four up till um, sort of 80 as well we have them parents coming along um, what I like about them is that they I try and keep it the activities as spacious as possible and they're they're all sort of based again on, on this kind of natural flow learning so that each daily cycle has um, is is related to um, a cycle or um, a direction in nature. So we sort of often start off the morning by um, having a bit of a, a group meeting, and we'll sort of check in. Uh, so we have a little community movement. Then we have, and then we'll play some games and we'll do something kind of active. Um, and then we tend to have a bit of spaciousness after lunch, so that you've got sort of three or four hours for people to can go about the farm, do what they want to do, explore, and we'll come back in the afternoon to have a bit of um, a slightly less active, but you know, again, more crafty activity before dinner, and we'll cook together. And then in the evening, we have stories around the fire, um, sort of stories of the day where we listen to each you know, things that each other have found interesting. And then uh, myself or one of the other facilitators will tell us of an old timeless 
story. Um, and we usually have na- nature connection games as well at night, sort of um, in the dark, which are great fun um, with torches or you know, water pistols or you know, <laughs> things, things like this. Yeah, we, this year we definitely used the water pistols more because it was so hot. Yeah. yeah. Um, and well, I think what people really like about them <clears throat> is the sense of community that develops by the end of the you know, four days together. And um, there's something um, because of the spaciousness and the way that it's run that people feel really held in it and that all different kinds of, um, you know, it's just, I feel it's really inclusive for whether you're an active person, a crafty person, somebody who wants to read, somebody who likes cooking. You know, there's all these different places within the camp where people can feel um, value and kind of sense of worth. And I think most of them like it, the fact that they get time to um, just spend time with their family in a fun, playful way. Um, and there's no real pressure to achieve anything. And that, uh, yeah, there's a bit of song and community that goes with it as well. So it's like being a mini tribe, really, for a, <laughs> for a week. Yeah. So you do that in the summer holidays and, and Easter? Uh, not Easter, but the um, spring back holiday one. Yeah, so in May. Mm. Yeah, so do do those two. And at the moment, I don't know whether we're going to, to have access to the farm next year because it might be, um, well, it might be sold. But I've got quite a few other places that I'm checking out mm. for um, uh, other potential camps next year. Mm. Yeah. And you also do corporate events. So can you tell us a little bit about how you adapt all what you've talked to us about um, with a family camp, with a corporate event, who you might get very many more people who don't want to engage. (laughs) (laughs) I imagine a lot of them are being told to go (laughs) by their bosses. (laughs) They are. They're told to go. Usually it's one person who thinks, oh, I know, it would be a good idea to do this. And then so everybody has to go and do it. Um, so when when you asked me that question, I was just thinking of a, a moment uh, when I went to a very sort of posh hotel. It was a, a five star hotel in Sussex somewhere to go and lead um, some uh, team building activities for BP for their sort of accounts and technical department. And so there were 60 of these um, guys who were, and girls or ladies who were you know, into, into computers and maths most of the time. And uh, I thought, well, the first thing that I should do with them is to give them uh, a way of splitting into different groups. So we did this through bird language. And <laughs> I, every one of them had a little thing on their, their desk that they had to open and inside was a, a, a picture of a bird and the, the sound of the call that it made. So one, for example, is the great tit and that, that makes a sort of teacher, 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 teacher sound. And another one was a duck. So you know, we had other uh, members going whack, 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 whack. <laughs> so we, we had 60 people coming, getting up on their table and sort of separating about the room into these different groups um, using those bird calls. They weren't allowed to say anything else. Amazing. Um, um, I loved that. Yeah. It was just so, it was so um, fun to just see them, you know, for a moment, they were like, oh my God. God, what are we being asked to do? This is ridiculous. And then 
them being like you know, just laughing and um, getting into it. And then we went and played, you know, things like Capture the Flag, and Ooh, I guess my favourite. Yeah, it's a fantastic game, isn't it? And some blindfold challenges, and um, yeah, a whole bunch of different stuff. Um, and it, at the end of the day, we had um, a, a fire lighting challenge as well. So it was a sort of slightly survival skills thing. Um, and again, just how competitive um, people are when you get, can give them a challenge like that. Um, so I like to have a mixture of stuff that everybody can do without any pressure. And, you know, some of the challenges that are sort of based on need to know survival skills. And it can be a lot of fun yeah. and silly at the same time. That's- Sounds really cool. Yeah, I'd love to do that. Well, you can do one day if you want to. Yeah, we could do a tapestry one. Yeah, we could do a tapestry one. That yeah. sounds great. We'll have to have a private conversation about who wouldn't come. <laughs> yeah. um, you founded Holland, holland.org.uk. We're going to link to that um, oh, okay. presentation and a bit of class and so on. Can you talk us a little bit about that? Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, uh, it came upon, the name came upon me by sort of adding a we into my name. So it became a whole land rather than Holland, because um, I thought that that represented uh, you know, whole body learning or holistic learning about the land. So that's why I called it whole land. And yeah, it's had sort of three aims, I suppose. It's been to work with um, uh, corporate groups or businesses, to work with, with families, and then to work in schools. Uh, so it's of doing nature connection. The idea that nature connection is about connecting people to the land and the landscape and those kind of common sense things that people have, have known for you know, thousands of years that we seem to be uh, missing. Um, and also connecting to each other through play or story or, or you know musical activities, you know survival skills, and also um, helping people tune into some of their own sort of creativity through uh, again giving them a chance to uh, to do some of the basic things that humans have done for a really long time, like make string from plant fibers, for example. But you, you can't don't really get to make that do that kind of stuff within school but it's still you know it's a real um connective developmental skills where you're, you're learning to take a resource and turn it in uh, from nature and return it into something that you can use and it's uh, you know, through the string you're also learning to use your fingers a lot as well and then um and because it's uh, sort of re- reciprocal in that you know you obviously need to have the plants in order to make the string so therefore we need to feed the plants to help make the string and it's just helping make those sort of connections and develop that reciprocity yeah so that's what whole land's about but it, it seems to have gone a bit online recently as well so it's not just about the um practical skills there seems to be a uh, a lot that I'm offering now through storytelling and sort of nature um, mu- musical activities online as well. Yeah, which was the unexpected way that it's developed and grown over the last five years. Yeah. Thank you so much, Chris. We've had such an enjoyable chat with you. I've learned so much. I can't wait to go out and do the, the sticking my fingers in my ears one and the blindfold <laughs> one and someone to grab hold of my elbow. Yeah. I'm really going to try some of these and perhaps at our Christmas party we can start with your um, corporate activity event with the 
The bird calls. Bird animals. Yeah. Yeah, give it a go. Thank you so much for talking to us. Yeah, it's been really nice, Chris. Thank you. It's been really lovely to talk with the people who are behind Tapestry as well and, you know, what you bring in terms of connection between parents and children uh, and schools. It's such a vital element of learning and growing. So, you know, I really respect what you're doing. Brilliant. Thank you for that. That's really kind. Thank you for joining us this week. If you've enjoyed what you've heard and you'd like to listen to further episodes, please subscribe. Thank you for listening. Bye.